Randy. Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. We hope you have a great time as you continue learning together. And um, everybody else, we will be in Luke 15 today. So if you would turn with me there, that would be great. Luke chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair underneath the seat in front of you. And you can turn to page 603 in those Bibles. That's where we'll be, page 603. Uh, Wasn't that especially good time of singing together today? It's really wonderful. Thank you, a band, for leading us. There's one there and one back there that enjoyed it. Glad for the rest of you. Um, We'll be in Luke 15. Uh, We'll have a a brother come and read it in just a second, but a couple comments to get us started. If you're new here today, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to have you with us. We have been, for the last several weeks, reconsidering together what exactly a church is, uh, why we gather, what we do and what God's uh, aim or objective is for us. So we'll be continuing that uh, today. Luke 15, if you're unfamiliar with it, contains a couple of parables. Uh, A parable is simply a story told in order to illustrate a particular spiritual point. And if we took all the parables that Jesus taught, certainly the one we'll look at today would be in the top two or three. It's commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. We've said the last several weeks that uh, the purpose of Church on Mill is to glorify God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, That we're here first to make much of God, and we do that as we encounter the gospel which we've been singing about together today, and as Christ changes our lives. Today we want to consider... Uh, what a church family looks like, what its traits are if we're continually being shaped by Christ into more and more and more closely resemblance, into a more close resemblance of who he is. And um, I'll read a statement about that, and then we'll look at Luke 15. We could say it this way, um, family traits. God's family are becoming a people who are Bible-believing, gospel-centered, transformation-minded, joyfully committed to each other, and passionately concerned for the community and the world. All of us are from a family, and there are traits that mark what growing up in that family was like. Some of those good, some of those not so good, right? Uh, The traits we hope would increasingly mark us as a church family would be those five things. And so today we want to talk through um, a way in which that looks and how that fleshes itself out. To do that, we've asked uh, Wally Hall if he would come and read for us. Wally, would you come, brother? And my beautiful wife is going to assist you. You're going to want to read every week. (laughs) Wally, here you go, brother. Wally, when did you become a part of Church on Mill family? 1958. 1958. Pretty awesome. Wally, um, my 
first Sunday here, I don't know if you remember this, I'll never forget this, eight years ago, Wally was standing on the patio by the door to come in. I was walking in for the very first time to preach the very first sermon here. Uh, Nervous, I'm sure you were too, what did we get ourselves into together? And Wally put out his hand and you said, welcome home. And that made such an impact on me. I, I love you, appreciate you. Would you read for us? This is the parable. It's on, but you've got to put it up to your mouth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is the parable of the prodigal son. <clears throat> and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered and took a journey into the far century, into the far country, and there he squandered his property recklessly. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Thank you, brother. If you don't know Wally, I can't encourage you enough to uh, pursue him and get, get to know him. This is an incredibly godly, a gracious man. And yeah. Wally and his, his wife, uh, Betty, have raised a couple of kids, so he's got some experience in uh, what he just read. So Luke 15, that's a part of uh, the pro- parable of uh, the prodigal son. Those of you in the room who uh, are parents, imagine if you're teenage son or daughter came to you and said what that son said. Maybe you didn't feel it like that father would have felt it. But in essence, what he's saying is, uh, Dad, I I wish you were dead, but since you're still kicking longer than we expected, would you give me my share of the inheritance now? I'd rather have you than have your money. I want your stuff, not you. That's what he's saying. That's what this son did. That's hard even for us today in a very different society, different culture, different patterns of life, to really imagine a son doing that to a parent. But in this culture, in the culture of the New Testament, it would have been unthinkable. Uh, Family allegiance in general and respect for one's parents in particular were cultural norms. Not so much today, but back then, they would have been what was expected. And notice verse 12 says that the son asked for his share of the property. A little detail there that's easy to miss, but what this father would have had to do is not simply give his son, a portion of what was in the bank. No, he would have had to sell off part of his land, 
part of his cattle, and then give that to his son. And in that culture, again, you didn't so much think of land as something you owned, but as part of who you are, because you lived off the land. And so this father would have been giving up not only his son, in a sense, but a very part of himself. Now, this father, in his infinite love and wisdom, chose to say yes to the son. Is that surprising to you? I said, okay, son, if that's where you are, if that's what you want, then I'll give it to you. Now, what did the son do? Well, in our vernacular, we would say he went to Vegas. He got in the car. He drove to Vegas. He got himself a place. He began making friends, had lots of experiences with women. He did everything dad never would have let him do. And for a while, the son had a lot of fun. For a while, the son had a really, really great time. If anybody tells you that sin is not fun, they're lying. This son had a great time. It's just that it was temporary. The, the pleasures of behavior that doesn't honor God never last. They always catch up to us. They're fun for a while, but then the snowball rolls down the hill and rolls over the top of us. So the son had a good time. It's just that it was temporary. And then the story tells us what happened. He, he ran out of money, which meant he lost his friends, which meant he no longer had the companionship of a woman. And then a recession, a crisis, a famine hit. And he wound up homeless, friendless, hungry, and full of shame. So this son lost literally everything he had. He had nothing. Have you been there? The absolute bottom. Every tie this kid had was gone. He's in a city where he knows no one with nothing. And so he does something that we can't even imagine if we were Jews. He winds up working with pigs. Now, this is the epitome of unclean, vile, nasty, terrible wrongness to the Jews. Who's concerned that had bacon today? But really, what's the picture here? The picture is that this is what the son had become. He had become vile, dark, defiled. Is there any going back when that happens? Can you recover from doing the thing you never thought you'd do and winding up in a place you never thought you'd wind up? Is there any hope? Well, let's see, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's 
Hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What's this illustrating? Well, the, fu- the son finally came to a point of repentance. He, he changed his mind. That's what the word repentance means. He came to see that the decisions that he'd made and the behaviors he's engaged in were wrong and harmful. And so he decided to go back to dad. He decided to return home and say, Dad, I'm sorry. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Now notice the way the passage talks about that in verse 17. It says he came to himself. Isn't that a great picture? Friends, when we come to recognize that the way of thinking, the manner of speech, the way we've behaved, how we've treated others, but ultimately what we've said and done before God is detrimental is harmful, is disobedient, then really what's happening is we're coming to ourselves. We're coming to an awareness of who and what we are. See, sin, as the Bible describes it, isn't simply behavior. It's deeper than that. It's a part of our very nature. And so when we come to ourselves, we recognize the only hope I have is that I could be forgiven. Because I can't fix this. Somebody more powerful than me has got to intervene and grant me forgiveness. And in this case, the son is recognizing, I don't, I don't deserve to be back in the home with dad. But maybe, just maybe, dad wouldn't treat me as one of the servants, as one of the slaves who lives there. But even lower than that, as one who just comes in and works for the day and then goes back somewhere else. Maybe dad would let me be considered one of those lowliest of all people. And over time, I could save up and maybe pay him back. That's coming, coming to himself. Such a great picture. The son came to see how horrible his life had become and that his only hope was the kindness of his father. Have you come to yourself? It's rhetorical, of course. But have you reached that point yet? Have you came to the point of recognizing, I have made such a disastrous mess of my life that only the kindness of another could redeem me, could rescue me? That's the point this son had reached. Now, In a sense, there's a great risk here because the son could not know how would the father react, right? Now, if you've been in church more than once or twice, you've probably heard this story. So there isn't much rhetorical power and effect left in it. But there is if we really get the image. 
Imagine this son taking step by 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 step over days, walking back from Vegas to Tempe with nothing. Nothing. And he has no idea how will dad respond. But he's got nowhere else to go. So I can just imagine him taking every step with a little flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He did not deserve a place back at the table. He had so defiled himself and his father that this father had every right to say, son, you got what you asked for. I love you, but you're not welcome here. And so that's what he's grappling with as he's walking home, step by step by step by step. I'm sure this will come as a shock to you, but I did a lot of stupid, foolish things as a child. Um, I wrote down just a few of them. Uh, When I turned 16, uh, the first weekend, I took the car out. I decided it was a race car. And literally just two, three days after I got my license, I was um, approaching 80 on a regular city street and lost control, ran into a large concrete entrance into a neighborhood. Uh, No other cars were involved and just destroyed my mom's car. My dad had a horrific gout at the time. So I'll never forget this image of me in the police car, my two friends, and here comes my dad with his cane. Because he can't hardly walk. And the car, uh, the majority of the front half of the car was now the center of the car. What is dad going to say? What's dad going to do? Dad had just given me a speech. Son, you tend to be kind of a daredevil. Don't do that with the car. First weekend out. Now, I had um, enough injury to my back that it really scared me to get back in the car. And so I didn't drive again for several months, partly because there wasn't a car to drive, but partly because I was scared. But eventually, my parents got me back on the horse. Eventually, they thought I had earned enough trust to drive again by myself. Is that funny to you? (laughs) So, I drove to school. It's like the second to last day of school the same year. And so this time I was driving not my mom's car, but my dad's car. It was his prized Jeep. And we decided this time we're not going to go on the major streets, we'll go through the neighborhood. And lo and behold, on a street I'd been on lots of times with other people driving, this time there was a policeman on the street. And I got a ticket going 52 and a 25. 
I tried telling the policeman I was dyslexic, but that didn't help. So I got to drive home to dad with a ticket. What's dad going to say? 52 in a 25. So I didn't drive again for a while. The next year, I got to drive again. And literally, the first time, Joe was with me, uh, we went out for lunch in the car. We were going through a neighborhood, and the guy in front of me was going too darn slow. We had to get to Wendy's fast. And so I decided on a residential street, I would pass this guy. And he decided, for some reason, that he would turn into his driveway as I was passing him. So, another first, wrecked dad's Jeep. This time I get to go home, but this time I was particularly scared. That day I wondered if I ought to go home. Pig pods sounded pretty good. I don't think I knew anything of what this son in this story would have felt. He had demoralized the family name. His father's estate that he worked so hard for, at least a third of it was now gone. Spent not in something fruitful, but in the passing pleasures of sin. So step by step by step by step, what's dad going to say? So he, he nears town, and here's the picture that is so tremendously powerful in this story. What does dad do? He sits on the porch with his cup of coffee and his pipe, and he says, I'm going to make him crawl back. He's going to have to beg and plead. He goes running to his son. But the cultural significance of this is completely lost on us. So give me a moment to try to explain. A, a patriarch in the first century didn't run. A patriarch in the first century was a man of valor was a man of strength, was a man of composure. Strength was seen not in the display of emotion, but in a calm, steadied, reasoned manner of life. And so the last thing a patriarch in the first century would do is hike up his robe in order to run. You just simply didn't do it. So all you weirdos out running around, what are you doing? This father hikes up his robe, exposing his legs in order to run to his son. Now I grew up thinking that that meant 
he really missed his boy. And he wanted to say to his son, I love you and you're welcome back here. And that's probably true. But that's not why he ran. Think about a society in which the family is the most important nuclear unit holding all of society together. And think about what this son did. This son brought shame not simply upon himself and not simply upon the family, but the entire community. This son committed a capital offense. He dishonored father and mother. And so if you're in a society in which the very worst thing you can do is disobey mom or dad. And a couple months later, in comes this boy, strolling in, shoulders sunk, ragged clothes, stench of pigs. What's the community going to do? They're going to run that boy out of town at best. And so this father running to this son is intervening. He's rescuing. He's not simply saying, son, I love you. He's saying, son, I take your shape. I embrace you. Not in spite of what you've done. I will take what the community thinks rightly belongs to you upon myself. He's protecting him. And so there they stand, embraced, and the community is in shock. This is not how the story goes. This isn't what happens. Fathers don't take on the shame of their sons. My dear friends, that's what God does for repentant sinners. He doesn't begrudgingly say, okay, but you got to beg for it. He throws open his arms. He embraces. He takes the guilt and shame upon himself in Christ on the cross. Do you need to come home? Have you ever seen God the Father like this? Look at verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Wow. So this community, all right, if you had a, a feast at your house in the first century, this wasn't just the family you liked and a few you tolerated. This is the whole community. And so this community who would have expected to run this son out is overwhelmed by the extravagant love and forgiveness of this father. And they come together and throw a party to celebrate the rescue of this son. Stories don't turn out that way. Or do they? You see, this story, of course, represents the way God the Father intervenes in the lives of his people. This is a picture of how God celebrates when broken people recognize their brokenness and come to Christ for forgiveness. There is no wringing of the hands in heaven. There's partying when a sinner comes home. Church, what does this have to do with church? Well, we want to be a people who welcome anyone, regardless of how far they've wandered away. We want to be a community that celebrates when God rescues people, because that's what the Father does. No one is beyond the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one is a lost cause. No one has gone so far that the Father can't embrace and love and forgive. No one's shame is so great and guilt so intense that Christ can't cover it. Amen? Now, if this were Hollywood, then that's where the story would end. That'd be it. This is the moment the Disney princess story has reached its conclusion. But the Bible isn't Hollywood, and so the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. So there's two boys. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. Came out of where? Came out from the party. So dad's son, who's been gone, who he thought, I may never see him again, is back. The whole town is rammed in the house. They're drinking, they're eating, they're dancing, they're singing. They're celebrating the love and forgiveness of the Father and the rescue of this Son. And out in the back, pouting, is the older brother. But again, this Father is loving. Extravagant love. And he goes out to the Son and look and see what he says. 
The son says to the father, verse 29. He answered his father, look, and these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the brother comes in from the field, another hard day at work. And he comes in to hear the celebration. He comes in bothered that the father received him back. Now, of course, whose calf had been killed? The son's. You see, everything that this father had left now belonged to the son. In this culture, the oldest child would get two-thirds. The second would get the rest. That third is gone. The other two-thirds belongs to the son. So the father has put on the younger son the robe, the ring, and they're eating the calf. If you are wired as a rule follower, let's be honest, that's got to get up under your skin, doesn't it? That you come in from another day of work and the brother who blew it all is being given your stuff. Not only is this wayward, disobedient brother back, but dad is happy about it. Some of us don't want a God like that. Some of us are tempted to think that what others have done is simply too bad. Some of us think that what we've done is enough to merit God's love. And invariably, if we think that way about ourselves, then we're going to look down upon others. We obey God's rules. We didn't walk away. We strive to do what He wants. We have long lists of do's and don'ts, and we've kept them. We are obedient, compliant, straight-A making. We've worked hard not to gossip. We've been honest. We've even done ridiculous things like put our money in the offering plate and met up with somebody for discipleship. We've kept ourselves pure sexually in our singleness, and we've been honest on our timesheets at work. In the part of the country I'm from, back in Oklahoma, they would say, we don't dance, drink, chew, or go with girls who do. So this reckless brother coming home is no cause to celebrate. This brother is everything we don't want to be and believe we are not. 
But friends, it's possible to think you're walking step by step with God and not to understand the heart of the Father at all. It's possible to believe that by our behavior we have earned our seat at the table. And again, if we think that way, then everyone else who hasn't been as good as we have, internally, we will scorn, belittle, mock, and hate. possible to think you know the heart of God and not know it at all. Not because you didn't go to Vegas, but because you think by following the rules, then that's made you right with God. But that's not how this works. You see, your self-righteous sense of goodness is just as sinful before a holy God as the other brother's full awareness of his badness. In fact, the brother who went to Vegas now understood the love and grace and forgiveness and embrace of the father in a way that that older son never had. And so this story that's so well known is often so misunderstood. Because the main point of the story isn't, if you are the younger brother, come home. The main point of the story is don't be the older brother. Now, how do we know that? Well, look back in your Bible all the way to verse 1. Okay, this is the occasion of the story. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus told three parables in succession to say, The Father forgives, the Father loves, the Father's gracious, the Father takes sinners. And tax collectors. He takes the people who go to Vegas and sleep with prostitutes. And so, you Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling, understand you are the grumpy older brother who doesn't know the heart of God. Ouch. Back to the question we asked at the beginning. What traits do we want to mark the church? Well, what traits marked this family in the parable? Well, they had a tremendously wise, gracious, thoughtful father. And they had what seems to be a good son and a bad son. One who followed the rules and one who rejected all the rules. One son who was very, very good. By all external measurements, he's doing all the right things. And one son who was very, very bad. 
But friends, both sons were lost. Both sons were alienated from the father. It's just that one left and one stayed. One son went crazy in his badness. The other son went crazy in his goodness. Or to put that another way, the older brother was lost in his self-righteousness. The other one was lost in his giving himself over to things that are on the naughty list. But friends, both of these people needed the grace of God. In the end, the bad son was saved, and we have no indication at all that the good son came to know the father. Maybe, but the story doesn't tell us that. This quote is about 450 years old. As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we at once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder His nature and how completely perfect are His righteousness, wisdom, and power the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then, what misquandering earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in consummate wickedness. Friends, apart from God intervening, the best among us, those who are not wired like me, Without God's help, I see rules as intended to be broken. But, but those of you who naturally are compliant and obedient, without God, all of that is rooted at the deepest level in things that are evil. And so even the good we do apart from God is bad. And the only hope we have is of Jesus Christ. His death being applied to us. Even the good we do is evil because it comes from evil motive. Now let's bring this home. Referencing this parable, um, one author and pastor says, there are two basic ways that human beings go about trying to make themselves and the rest of the world right. He calls one of them moral conformity and the other self-discovery. In other words, older brother and younger brother. So moral conformity looks like this. I'm not going to do what I really want to do. I'm going to comply. I'm going to submit. I'm going to be good. I'm going to do the right things because I am right. That's older brother-ish. While the other, self-discovery, says, I decide what's right for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to find out my own true self. Older brother, younger brother. Now, the majority of us can likely more identify with the younger brother because culturally, we're more and more given to the worldview that we determine what's right and wrong in our own eyes. 
And yet there are some older brothers and sisters here. And so Jesus would say to you, he would press home the point, the church is to be a place full of former younger brothers and sisters and former older brothers and sisters. Full of people who have tried really hard to morally conform and found in the end that to be damning. And people who gave themselves away to their badness and found that equally to be morally damning. And that the church would be a community where both are embraced and loved and accepted. Because neither moral conformity nor self-discovery work. What kind of church do we want to be? A church where both older brothers and sisters and younger brothers and sisters are welcomed because the gospel changes both. We want to be a church of former rule breakers and rule keepers who have both come to see their sin and Savior the Savior. We want to be a church that's ever mindful of the gospel where we're not turning our noses up at people who aren't as good as us. We want to be a church full of people who regularly exercise repentance and confession of sin. Either the repentance and confession of sin towards our own sense of moral superiority or towards the giving away of ourselves to things we know are wrong. We want to be a church overflowing with love and grace. Someday, somewhere, there ought to be a church full of former older brothers and sisters and equally full of former younger brothers and sisters. Someday, somewhere, there ought to be a church that takes sin really seriously, where we are not shy to say to one another, stop it. And yet equally full of love and grace and mercy and kindness. Someday somewhere there ought to be a church where there are people who repent of their goodness because they recognize that I am prone to arrogant self-righteousness in which I think I'm better than you. Someday, somewhere, there ought to be a church where those who know they have squandered their lives can walk through those doors and experience nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to feel the full weight of this story. 
I pray that if there are any here today who have never genuinely experienced the forgiveness and grace and embrace of the perfect Father, that God, you would help them now to feel the full weight of either the way in which they have counted on their goodness to make them right or have given themselves over in badness to things that are wrong. That there would be an equal sense that we have squandered the life the Father has given us. And that then God quote, closely behind those right feelings of brokenness and guilt would come an awareness that Jesus came and died and rose again as the perfect sacrifice to rescue us from self-righteousness and from sinful pleasure. I pray you'd save people today. Pray also, God, for those who have already found your embrace, who have wandered either back into a squandering of life or who have been obeying most of your rules, but have done so not as means to walk in a way of honoring the gospel of Christ, but to turn our noses up at others. Father, would you forgive us either way and help us be a church increasingly full of forgiven older brothers and sisters and forgiven younger brothers and sisters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.